Hello, this is Michael F. Shine. I am reporting to you from a bunker uh, in a remote location. I'm the author of the Hype Handbook, allegedly, and founder of Microfame Media. I am on the Sass Holes podcast. Uh, I am not thrilled about it. However, I have been told to report this to you. Thank you. Welcome to Sass Holes. We are revenue ops with an edge. With decades of making interesting decisions, Jamie, Jason, Marcus, and Pete are dedicated to helping aspiring sales leaders accelerate revenues with our no BS approach to sales leadership strategies and tactics. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. DemandFarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now. We got some shout-outs to do. Dr. Yicklam has got a new position as Associate Director of Strategic Initiatives at AbbVie. Ryan Lazar, how you doing, buddy? New gig, Country Manager at Qualtrics. Rosalind Mikasell, 12 years at Career Builder. Jake Douglas, new gig as Enterprise Sales Exec at Caro. Andrew Maurice, old school, 8 years of Chronicle Media. Frank Ruffalo, even older school, two years, CoEO Solutions. Tina Abroy, one year at X Moonshot. Mike Demikert, two years at Landstorm Marble. Natalia Grigoriz, 14 years at Custom Accounting CPA. Whitney Jackman, two years at Outreach. Francisco and Shecky, got a new gig as basketball coach at Excel Academy for Higher Learning. Rob Sheehan, how you doing, buddy? New gig sales exec at CoStar. Patrick Kent, the funny one. How you doing, buddy? New gig enterprise account exec at Route. Michael F. Shine, thank you for coming on the Sassholes podcast. I know this is the first place you wanted to be today. <laughs> and, you know, um, I've been compelled, but uh, uh, I've been told by my handlers that it is absolutely the first place that I want to be. <laughs> <laughs> you are the author of the Hype Handbook. We're all about hype here in the, at the Sassholes podcast. T- tell us your background. Uh, you also have a, a a company out there, don't you? Yeah, that's what they tell me. I, I, my background is a long and winding road. I mean, how much time do we have? I, I guess at the heart of everything, I've always been a writer since I was five or six years old, and I, I've made my living in all kinds of ways. And I'm proud of a lot of things, a lot of the things I've done. But I've always thought of myself that way first. Um, wanted to be a novelist. Wanted to write songs. Um, And, you know, one thing led to another, and I had a corporate job for a long time, which turned me into an adult. But after I learned a bunch there, I got very tired of it and was trying to figure out a way to get out and still make a living. Um, And many years ago, I I guess it was about 12 years ago now, I learned about demand generation copywriting. You know, I, I had thought of copywriting as ad writing. And because of the digital landscape, there was a big market outside of ads, you know, white papers and web copy and and case studies and marketing material. So I realized I could do that. And I thought I had the talent to do it well. And it turned out, I think I did, because people who would hire me uh, would hire me again. But what I was really bad at was getting people to know about me, ironically. You know, I, I thought that because I wrote well, Uh, People would see that and then tell everyone about me. And that didn't happen. And I had become such an adult from the corporate world that I was learning about marketing. So I'm a real student when I want to be. So I started studying search engine optimization and sales funnels and none of it worked. Um, And so I remembered back to the days when I was more of a mischief maker and when I played in bands and we might not have been musically talented, but we were always good at selling out a show. And we did that by hyping up the show. And we can talk a little about that. But I sort of changed my whole approach and, and kind of came up with this mischievous approach to s- selling my writing. And it worked. I, I built a successful writing practice. And then I realized people wanted the uh, what they would call marketing, you know, driving 
uh, sales and attention and a following more than they wanted the writing. Um, because that's in the business world, that's what people want writing for, not to kick back on the beach, but to do those things. So it turned into a company, um, an agency, and then uh, sort of my model is is sort of weird. It's kind of like an agency, but different. And we can talk about that. But yeah, I mean, that that that's what I do now. It's Microfame Media. And I run that and I, I uh, write um, articles and books and things like that, both for my own fun and to support what we do at the company let me let me ask a question that'll uh pique both of your interests uh michael f shine you are a punk rocker i i mean yeah i i guess yeah you were in your ute and you know um i i heard a great quote i should say that uh hippies are um mean people pretending to be nice and punk rockers are nice people pretending to be mean so i think i sort of fell in the latter camp yeah well, the reason I brought I'm bringing this up is 1976. I think that's when punk came out. Johnny Rotten, the Sex Pistols, talk about hype. I mean, they uh, they got a uh, what was his name? John Lydon. He uh, he was way ahead of his time. Uh, what did you play back in the day? Play, you know, quote unquote. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I bass, I, I, I guess I played guitar. Um, I, I uh, definitely vocalized, if you could call it that. Um, and I think our songs were pretty good. But I, I mean, I learned the basics on guitar and then was like, let's start a band, you know, which ruined me as a musician. Um, I think I was always more interested in, in the hype part. I didn't really think of it as a business thing then, but I was always sort of fascinated by that genre of music as performance art and as kind of a rabble rousing attitude like i loved the idea that these bands would clear a room on purpose and then get covered in the press for it that was that's something i've taken with me i think my whole life so what what bands influenced you to get into this hype i just threw out sex pistols because they i mean you had joy division you had all the any particular band helps set the foundation for you yeah i, I loved the sex pistols I'm 45, so I was born in 1977, uh, which seems old to a lot of the people I talk to now, but it's funny. The original punk rockers were already in bands when when people yeah, were, yeah. when I was born. So, um, it, you know, I was into whatever was on the radio for a long time, Def Leppard and, you know, I don't know, Pump Up the Jam and whatever. And then I had this older cousin who uh, got me into a band called the Dead Milkmen. Uh, they're from Philly and I'm from there and they're really funny. Okay. And I, and then uh, it's, it's funny. Um, I, I was really into that. And then I guess I developed my taste in two ways. So I love that band. So my mother, it, I'm Jewish and it was Hanukkah and my mom wanted to get me a good present. And she knew I liked the dead milkman. I was probably like 12. So she went into the record store, the CD store and said to the guy, my son uh, likes the dead milkman. Can you think, can you recommend anything that's like that, but not satanic? And she actually came back with a sex pistol with the sex pistols yep. album and a Sonic youth album. Um, <laughs> and then I subscribed to the Columbia house record club. Oh, God. And I asked friends what I should get. So I got a Ramones album and um, violent femmes and, and stuff. So I think I never really. And then of course, when Nirvana came out, they, yeah, they yeah. blew us, they rocked our world. That was sort of my band that changed everything of our generation. So um, yeah, that, that well, was sort oh, of, so, yeah. So, so the hype, how did that work out for the bands and in your band and kind of uh, connected to your book, your handbook that you have out? So the first bands I was ever in were horrendous um, in every way, shape and form. So, I mean, that the first band I was in when I was 13, none of us played instruments and we divided up the instruments based on who whose parents were willing to get them what and who could afford what. And the fact that our singer was the only one with a deep voice when we started the band because he was a year <laughs> older than us. Um, and we were called the Psychotic Koalas. Um, so the only thing that salvaged us at all was one, I had a club with this kid, Craig Green, who I'm still friends with. He was two years older than me, a football player and, um, really muscular and didn't, we were nerds and, you know, and, and, um, he played the drums and was actually good. 
So we started talking about music one day and we had some stuff in common. Weirdly enough, the band Rush, which is most markedly not a punk band, uh, but he joined it. It was really cool of him because uh, he was in the band and, and um, we became friends and, and we could hang together as a band. And then I guess the other thing was hype. I mean, we we had this battle of the bands that we were in. So um, at the time, there was uh, the biggest song on the radio was I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston from The Bodyguard. Yeah. And we had a friend, Patrick, who was a real weirdo, who um, real big guy. And and by big, I don't mean muscular, but he was kind of like the class clown. And so he dressed up in tinfoil with like a tinfoil hat. If you remember, Whitney Houston had this like metal outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sang the beginning part acapella. And then we did a punk version of that song and everyone loved it, even though we could barely play. So there was all that. You know, I always had that attitude. Um, I was in a band called After School Snatch, which I think was a creative name. I do like Um, that. Yeah, but but um, then I was in a band in New York that was pretty good. I mean, um, I hooked up with guys who could play really well. And um, I think I, again, I was always a writer. So I started really focusing on the songwriting and on, on the theatricality. And the guys I met up with uh, from a Village Voice ad, they liked my songs a lot. And that band had some some success. I mean, not financially, which is very hard to do but we had a residency at arlene's grocery which is a popular club it's where the strokes got got their start um was cbgb around then yeah we played there which was which was an honor but um it was past its heyday you know (laughs) yeah it was it was definitely past its heyday um but arlene's grocery was in its heyday and and we did the all ages matinee we started it we used to sell it out a lot um yeah i mean we 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 um Again, it's very hard to make that work out financially, but um, and bands break up, and that's what happened to us. Yeah. But um, yeah, it was cool. We we we, you know, I used to dress like a nun and walk around, and then people would come in, and I would do that on stage. We, um, I got on Showtime at the Apollo, or we did um, yeah, because yeah. we knew we would be booed off, and that got us a lot of attention. So, but but our songs were good. We probably weren't good enough to get famous, but uh, we certainly got people into us so in order to have hype i mean you need conflict uh differentiation uh how did you use that does that apply to the handbook did you use any of that or did you know to use it yet all of this was instinctive uh, at the time i mean i i've since studied it and and really um researched it and read countless books and papers and turned it into a process that I use with our clients. Uh, But at the time, I think it was just a function of a a certain mischievousness that I had. Um, I've never really been uh, mischievous in my life. You know, I mean, I, I, that's what I was saying about punks being nice people pretending to be mean because, you know, I'm not a big, never was a big partier, you know, but um, I like to get a rise out of people and I always have. And so, yeah, I mean, again, we had a song called Ash Wednesday. So it's funny. We, there was, there's a place in New York. Wait, a Jewish I, guy I, has a song called Ash Wednesday. Right. So this was, right. so exactly. So it's funny. This is a great interview because I've not really talked about this stuff in detail. I sort of had my canned version of like what the band thing yeah, was. Yeah, save that for the other people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so this is fun. Uh, so there's a place in New York City. I don't know if it's still there, but it's called uh, or was called ABC No Rio. It was basically a squatter kind of place this collective you know they don't really have a stage they have a floor um and you know a lot of hardcore bands in the 80s played there so we got invited to play there and before that we were trying to play for we were in our 20s early 20s but we were trying to play for people in their early 20s and that was a very beautiful scene in new york at the time you know books have been written about it mm-hmm. but the strokes notoriously you know the singer's dad was the head of, of of um elite models you know started elite models it was there were a lot of very beautiful women in the audience and uh, those audiences didn't of course see you michael Efshan. It, it that's 100 percent right those audiences did not respond to us as well you think you're kidding but they would kind of like not like we could not get a following in that group so 
one day by accident, um, we got booked on a show at this place, ABC No Rio. And and just by coincidence, a band called MDC, Millions of Dead Cops, was playing there, who's kind of a legendary hardcore band from the 80s, older guys, you know. So we go in there and the place is jam-packed. And, and you know, that's a band that it's like kind of a violent attitude and just yeah. stripped down and sneakers and jeans, you know. So I come in there to a packed house of, of basically teenagers and I was dressed in a full nun habit with a cross hanging off my chest. And I said to everybody, and people were like, what the hell is it? So for a minute, I thought people were going to rush the stage and, and kill me, you know, like it yeah. was, you know, but um, I said to everybody, let's start by doing the Lord's Prayer. And we had a keyboard player and he played like kind of like church music and people were like, what is this? And then I got them into it. And they all kneeled down and like the whole, and then we, and the song is very upbeat once it starts and very, you know, melodic, but and the crowd went crazy. So that was the beginning of our following. We got together after the show and we're like, we sort of took a risk by mistake there. And that was completely what we thought was the wrong crowd. And they went crazy over it. And MDC didn't really, they, they, yeah. they had a following, but it was like, not that great, you know? And, so we were like, let's just play all ages shows. You know, we're 23 years old, 24 years old. But like, why are we trying to go for the prestige of this other market? So that that was um, whatever success we had. That's where it came from. I mean, we had a pretty big following of, of teenagers. To make this boring again, I'm really curious <laughs> about you um, identifying uh, untapped market um, in that respect. Um, so what did that do in terms of your thinking? Did did that start to shape the kind of hype that you went after uh, and that you tried to create? Yeah, I, I, that's a great, you know, way of looking at it because I have done that in my business life. I mean, I, I, I guess if you dissect what happened there, even though we stumbled into it, we had enough sense to capitalize on what we stumbled into, right? So a lot Lucky of bands and uh, meeting opportunity, isn't it? Yeah. And again, it's hard to talk about this because we never made money at this. But people, you know, the reason I still consider it a success is because people were telling me, like, you can barely play guitar. Like, you were always known as the writer guy. Why are you starting a band? And we, you know, and we had a legitimate band with a following that sold out shows right so i've made a career doing that as well i feel free <laughs> yeah most people you know most people don't get into the nba nba right and that's what what becoming a rock star is but um you know i'll take it but anyway to to, to that point you know it was sort of a vanity metric that we had the good sense to overlook because the new york scene at that time which was an awesome scene and very exciting was really a fashion oriented scene great music but um the way people dressed was really amazing and really stylish um it was you know you had the strokes you had interpol you had the yeah yeah yeahs you you know they were all in their 20s they were all playing to very beautiful there's a book called meet me in the bathroom uh which is about this they were the in crowd you know, I mean, they, they they were, they were, you know, it was cocaine and after hours parties and beautiful people and a les a sort of, you know, you watch old Strokes videos and his amazing album, but his eyes, like they don't really move a lot. You're the good yeah. singer. He kind of slurs his vocals because he's too cool to whatever. Right. And, and, you know, it's easy to romanticize that because they were the in crowd and we wanted to be a part of that. And we knew um, people in my band knew some of those guys, not the strokes, but, but new people in that world. And our audience was, was, they were young. They were not as angry rats. as our generation. They, they were just, they were kids, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. they, they were, they were high school students. I mean, they were awkward, you know, they were um, not yeah. able to drink, even though well, yeah, they you did. Do. Yeah. Well, you do. If you're a nerd or whatever, you're trying to, fit in society and that's yeah. the way that you you can be a jock you can you know be a burnout you can what, whatever it is you identify yourself you market yourself as that's a cool way that you have a skill it's a differentiation that somebody else doesn't have and they say oh wow look at that dude up on stage i get it well I, I, th shine, I think i just want to say cool i think dude. you I, ha I think you have to be willing though to ignore the 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 
the um, mockery or the poorly intentioned advice. So the, a lot of the guys in my band, they were really good musicians, music school guys, and they did what we called mercenary gigs for money. So they played in a band with, with a guy who I won't name because sadly he passed away. He's a really good guy, but he was of that crowd. He had had a major label deal. Lenny Kravitz, his manager was his manager and they didn't really have a real following. You know, he would pack every show with very beautiful people because he was popular and they would sit there and they would nod their heads. And he came to one of our shows once and we had people bouncing off the walls, like singing along with every word. And I remember he was sort of talking, talking shit about us, you know, kind of like, ah, you know, uh, that's not like the real deal. You know, that's just like kitty bop stuff or whatever. And I get it. You know, he was threatened because he was doing sort of as much as you can do a, a, a tried and true path with the rock and roll thing. He had the manager and the showcases and we were kind of playing to these street rats, but they were going crazy over us. But it would have been easy because they were so popular and had so many external signifiers of success, like a manager and all that, that it would have been easy to sort of go that route. But I guess maybe we had the good sense to stick to our guns. What were your planning meetings like? Or did you just go have uh, an idea and then run with it? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) planning meetings, you know, Um, (laughs) That, I, I use that in a loose uh, definition. I'm just curious how much fun they were. We just spent a lot of time together. You know what I mean? Because we were all very serious about making it happen. At and that you were time, all originals, no covers, right? We did a few, very few. Um, Generally, we did, more originals. Um, and... We weren't. We weren't a cover band. No, we did yeah, three yeah. originals. You we did. Be... Uh, no, that. we did two drunk to fuck by the Dead Kennedys. Uh, and one time we did a song by Daft Punk. And I think there was like some other song. No, I don't know. I mean, once in a while we'd meet at a diner and we would come up with things. We would think about things. I mean, a lot of times it was me, to be honest. You know, I mean, it, it really, those guys were great players. The bass player arranged all our stuff. But the vision of the band was mine. Like I placed an ad in the Village Voice. Or actually I answered their ad. They were trying to sell their services, but they liked the stuff so much that they joined the band. But, I mean, that's um, all you had back then in a copier machine and going yeah, around yeah, and stapling, yeah. you know, ads up. You know, now you have the internet now and it's, you know, a lot of noise that's out there. How do you cut through all that? Uh, if you could go back in time, what can you take from back then and uh, apply it with your clients today? Because anybody can just go to Facebook and say, hey, check out my band. And you can have one person show up if you're lucky. Uh, Anything that you've used from back then that you you, uh, transpose over to your clients now? So ironically, there was a lot of noise then as well. I mean, being in New York was, you know, a bit of a challenge because, um you know, in in Philly, the music scene was really small and the bands were surprisingly good. So if there was a show, it was like the only show that night of a certain genre. So everyone would be there. And in New York, you could have a packed house one day and and not have a lot of people the other because there's always a million things to do. So there were always a million flyers up, et cetera. But I guess the thing I learned was exactly what we were talking about. I mean, my company is called Microfame Media and, and it's, I mean, thinking about what Marcus said, that's exactly it. Like, it's very tough to appeal across the board, right? Like, there's always this attitude that you want to appeal to as many people as possible. And I think what I learned, and this is something that has made me a lot of money and and made my clients a lot of money, you know, as I've gone forward. And I think I did start to learn it then. It's that if you can dominate a corner of the universe – then you can expand outward from there, right? Like, so, um, yeah, I get, well, there's a lot of noise if you just post a bunch of stuff up all the time. But if you say to yourself, okay, who are the 20 to 50 most influential, listened to powerful people in the sheet metal industry, whatever your industry is, right? Because I, I knew a guy who ran dental practices and there was a guy 
that he would listen to who had a video show that every dentist would listen to about their business practices. If you could get that guy to promote you or sing your praises, you would look like you were everywhere at once to the people who count, to the people who buy from you. Whereas, so it's like, instead of focusing on getting on Oprah, look for your mini Oprahs. Like who is, and that's maybe not as exciting, but instead of trying to get on the Today Show, you know, I, I know somebody who got on all of those big shows when their book came out, really big shows, and they didn't sell a whole lot of books. But then I know people who get on, you know, 50 niche podcasts in a one month period and do millions of dollars of sales. Well, we can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Michael, I've shined. All right. We, we talk about punk. Okay. Look, we were all too young back then to, you know, really enjoy punk back yeah. then. But uh, let's talk about hype and then the next genre of music that came out and uh, hip hop, rap. Uh, you had East Coast, West Coast. You had Biggie Smalls out of New York. You had uh, Tupac out of the West Coast. Suge Knight was talking <laughs> up uh you know, the West side, you know, the West side of the country. And uh, what was it? Uh, Puffy uh, Combs was trying to talk up, you know, the East side. A lot of that stuff had to have been generated. Do you think there's a lot of hype in, in, in that type of music? I mean, I got the word from, from that type of music. I, I, that was the first music I liked. I didn't know it was called hip hop. That's the only music that in my lifetime, I really saw get invented when i when i was a little kid um i used to call it breakdancing music and i didn't listen to rock music i mean i listened i had this white tape called electric breakdance and we would put down cardboard on the ground it's probably like 1983 i was like yeah. six you know seven and and um there was just some jam on it you know and i loved run dmc run um, dmc yeah yeah they were my favorite um all of that so i i i like hip-hop uh and, and still do and um, it's funny because a lot of people, I, I tell them that I write about and promote hype and, and certain people, I've been called a professional bullshit artist, you know, with disdain. I've been saying, why, you know, why do you want to sell that horrible message? But in, in the world of rap, um, it's considered a positive. I mean, Public Enemy used to have, and many groups had a hype man who was part of the group. And if you say something's awesome, you say that's hype. And I, I have a theory for why that is, you know, if you are following step A, step B, step C, right? Like if you're in the mainstream of society and you have comparatively many opportunities, it's really, it's all well and good to say, oh, you know, it's distasteful to, to try to figure out creative ways to get attention for yourself. But, you know, rap is from the South Bronx, which is the poorest zip code in the United States. And um, I think that in hip hop, people are very clear about the way the world is versus how they think it ought to be. So that doesn't mean what we normally think of, which is committing crimes and cutting corners, although that's, you know, been done, but certainly not the guys in Public Enemy. It's the idea that you have to get very creative within the parameters of how the world really works of getting attention for yourself. So like you listen to, um, I really like uh, Wu-Tang Clan and, you know, those guys, once they decided to get serious and they actually left crime behind, you know, because it was hard to avoid in, in where they grew up, they would do things like they had, they made sure they had a symbol that was extremely bold and bright yellow on purpose and they would paste it all over Staten Island at eye level, you know, repeatedly to make sure like they thought about every detail of drumming up attention for themselves. Um, you know, they they can't, they negotiated with record companies that the RZA, who was kind of the mastermind, would produce all of the records, but that all of the solo acts could be on different labels, but all the money would flow back into the Wu-Tang Collective so they could get the branding of Wu-Tang. 
And I think that if you talked to those guys, to the RZA or any one of them, they would proudly say that they were hype artists and 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 no laws were broken. I mean, they they everything they did enriched people's lives. They created a very um, amazing, creative sort of enterprise. So, yeah, I, I think that it tends to be a lot of professional sniffiness yeah. um, about people doing things that are disruptive and break the rules. Um, and if you just spunked about you know t- t- ten grand uh, on an ad campaign uh, for the month, and it's yielded two uh, inbound inquiries uh, for someone from a four hundred one scam uh, or four hundred nine scam, um, then you're bound to be a, a bit sniffy about it. Just like the guy turning up to your gig uh, was pr- probably professionally jealous about the reaction that the um, the audience gave you, uh, because that's what performers really want. They don't want just to turn up for the money. If they're turning up for the money, it's a soulless performance. Uh, you gave your heart and soul, uh, the audience participated, and there was an interplay. So it was a real interaction, and there was intimacy there. And I think that's one of the things that hype generates with the niche audience. It's about creating that intimacy, uh, because you are a tribe. Um, and, um, you know, if, if you can teach people um, how to or if you can be the one uh, who draws people in and uh, you're a central focus um, and you're helping them throw rocks at their enemies. Uh, you know, if, if you're growing up in South Bronx, I imagine, um, you know, you've got quite a high stress level. And right. your perspective of the world is that uh, you've got to struggle for everything. So um, I think when people get sniffy about this stuff. It's more often than not out of fear and uh, professional or jealousy uh, and envy uh, rather than out of anything substantive. Um, so my question is, how do you maintain, how do you develop the courage uh, to do this stuff um, when convention and um, you know what everyone else does, the, the crowd uh, is telling you not to do this? How, how do you muster up the nerve? It seems to me that where it starts is really becoming confident in the stuff that you're hyping out, that it has inherent value, and also becoming convinced that the world is how the world is and setting up a moral sort of filter to make sure you're doing the right thing, right? So there there are certain people in the world. So yes, that sniffiness thing is such a great point, and it's so true. And simultaneously, I t- I spend a lot of time taking down empty hype artists. You know, nothing bothers me more than people who are intuitively good at these kinds of strategies and are using them to sell stuff that's deceptive and that makes people's lives worse. Because what happens is the people who really have the good stuff they feel that lack of courage. They think that cream will rise to the top. And because so many scumbags, you know, are on balance better at this, maybe to compensate for the fact that they know that all they have is hype, that they know they don't have anything good. These online course purveyors, these, you know, that that their course basically tells you work hard and read lots of books, you know, give me $495, right? So I think- yeah, I, I I think what it comes down to is realizing or convince, and this is a lot of the work I do, it's just to convince people of this, is that when done properly, hype can add a lot of color to the world. I mean, Wu-Tang Clan, if you like rap, is one of the best rap groups of all time. David Bowie is one of the best artists of all time. Um, Ty Lopez, his courses are, are useless. Um, they're, they're completely overpriced. So if, if, and then you set up a moral framework you you vow that whatever you do you never deceive and you leave people better off than you found them so if you have that sort of and you got to really believe that it can't be some nonsense thing but but if you're sure what you're selling is great and you know you have a moral framework then it becomes play then it becomes let me try to use these principles that other people have tried and run them through that filter to drum up attention for good stuff. And the good news is human beings are more alike than we are different and we are very irrational. So (laughs) human beings crave an ecstatic experience. That's why if you look at 
a rock concert, an Amway rally, and a religious rally, people have the same kind of reactions, even though the content is completely different, right? So you can have fun with it. You can master these sort of strategies to drum up attention in the security. It's almost like being a warrior. You're promoting awesome stuff and doing so ethically because so many people are doing it to promote crap. Yeah. Well, people have to realize we are all in sales and we are all performers, just some better than another. Right. And how do you separate yourself from the pack? Because anybody can sell anything anybody wants. Okay. A hundred percent. Yeah. So if you screw somebody over, there goes the referrals and, you know, good luck. You'd think so. I mean, I can't believe how many of these people sell stuff over and over again. It's this idea that it's kind of like you didn't pray hard enough. You know, it's like you took my digital course and you didn't make millions of dollars. Well, you're not working hard enough. You're not a hustler. You know what I mean? It's, it's like unfalsifiable. It's hard to sell someone a bad car more than once. But when it comes to information and this fluffy stuff, it's sad how often you can sell stuff over and over again. It actually makes me very upset to see so what how that your, happens. What uh, number one tip to uh, help people separate themselves from the pack to differentiate themselves? Yeah. Michael, Michael F. Shine, what is hype? Yeah. So, so the way I define it, and I'm, I'm really trying to push this definition, is any set of activities that get a large number of people highly emotional so you can move them in a certain direction, um, usually a lot of people. Um, and they're not moral and they're not immoral. They're completely devoid of morality. So I don't mean they're immoral, but they're just based on what really works, right? They're based on things that get people emotional. That might be angry, that might be happy, that might be amused, whatever, that move people in a certain direction, a large number of people, so that you can get them to take the action that you want them to take. So if 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 I only had a few minutes to talk to someone and, and told them one thing they could do right away, it would be to draw a line in the sand. So um, what I the first thing I usually ask a new client of ours is two questions. And they're really one question asked two different ways. I, I say to them, what is a point of view widely held in your industry or in your corner of the universe that you 100% disagree with, that you think is misleading people and sending people in the wrong direction. And then I also ask them, um, what is a point of view that you are 100% confident is the case that other people tend to disagree with? Because if you have a point of view, if you don't have a point of view and you're in business, especially if you're not selling a commodity like a sheet metal or a pork bellies or frozen orange juice. You can tell I've seen trading places a lot of times, but <laughs> um, you know, if you're not selling something like that, why are you in business if you don't have something that is solving a common problem out there or, or that speaks to people in a different way than other people do? So I'll give you an example from, from my career, right? So for all intents and purposes, I'm in the marketing business. And a lot of times what, what I would see out there from people in my world was in a million different forms, this idea that all you have to do is master X technology or X program and all your problems will be solved. So funnels. Yeah. Like, like, like Russell Brunson, who is great. He's a great marketer. But his whole thing is, as long as you master funnels, all of your problems will be solved. And this is exactly how you do it. He even has like a presentation with a formula that you're supposed to follow. As long as you master Instagram marketing, as right, as long as you master social. And my, so I disagree strongly with that because by the time a certain tactic or technology is the thing to do, it's probably already too late and things move on very quickly. Plus it, it you lose a competitive advantage. So what I preach, the thing I'm hundred percent confident about is that what you need to master is mass psychology. You need to understand timeless principles of how groups of human beings work and then conduct experiments using the right technology or whatever you have at your disposal to play with that techno that, that thing. So what do I call that? I call that hype. And that's what I'm, known for. So I'm constantly beating that drum. Forget about the technology. 
That's the last thing you should worry about. You have to worry about mass psychology. But, you know, before that, before I had figured that out, I was out, I was just one of many marketers and, you know, did fine, but I wasn't known for anything. And I had to hustle for every piece of business that I got, right? I'm a great writer, big deal, right? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say, work really hard on figuring out that point of view. And once you're getting traction around it, ruthlessly eliminate anything that doesn't fit in with that. I used to be part, I used to co-host a podcast called Access to Anyone. And it's great. I mean, my co-host still hosts it. It's popular. I used to get business from it, but I resigned, which was hard for me to do because it didn't fit the hype theme. It's a very like, um, it, it's not edgy by design. It's about networking and that sort of thing. And so I so don't know like it. this podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's, I mean, it's a great podcast, but it was a totally, it was a different experiment and it didn't fit my point of view. And as a result, it, it's kind of like you're playing in a band, but then people run into you on the street wearing pleated khakis, you know, you can't really be a rock star. You got to live that role all the yeah. time. One of the things that sucks, and I'm going to reference the social dilemma. I don't know if any of you guys saw it, but it really drives home the, because uh, you, you brought up psychology and uh, negativity. People want, are more prone to look at something negative than, than positive. And I hear what you're saying. You want to promote, you know, positive things, yet people want to hear negative things. And I'm, going towards political advertising because that's where everything got screwed up with Facebook, or at least that's what it se seems yeah. like. If you're going to hype something up, there has to be some type of conflict or something that needs to separate you from the noise in order to have, is there a way to have positive conflict? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think it's a reframing of what you mean by negativity, right? So there's negativity like, going out and being like, my competitors are ugly and have a big nose and are disgusting and treat their families horribly. Well, that's being a troll, right? Yeah. But I think being against things that you consider um, worse for your, for your customer base without being personally offensive is, is a very strong thing, right? So I could go around, you know, when I went, into business. So after I was a copywriter, when I started trying to promote myself as an agency and as a marketing company, I was, I would say, oh, I am a content casting person. We had a program called Contesting. I would say it's very important to have a systematic approach to creating viral content. And our system has a systematic approach to doing that. And it didn't get any traction at all, even though it's still what we do. And then I changed so that was a positive. That was me going on saying, this is what we have. This is what we do. Isn't it wonderful? But then I changed my approach and I started saying, focusing on tweeting 24 hours a day and setting up funnels and finding the, you know, following the trends is a terrible way to market your business. And instead you need to focus on mass psychology. We just so happen to have a process that does that. That's negative. Because I'm, you know, like Martin Luther King, everyone talks about his, I am not comparing myself to him. Right, right, That's not what I'm doing. But but he was really good at mastering the media. And everyone remembers, I have a dream. But what people don't remember is other speeches he made where he would say, I hate intolerance. You you can find it online. I right. hate segregation, you know? Right. So I, I have a dream yeah. was not about uh, that dream. It was actually about an inflection point where America had a choice and they could drift. Right. Uh, right. towards um you know racial hatred and violence uh, or they could um you know uh, fulfill that dream um simon bone has done a wonderful visual model um uh, to explain this which if anyone wants i can share um but I i'm really really curious about this because um the intent seems to be so important uh, to you uh, mike and uh, what i'm really very curious about is when um you're putting a program together or a campaign together for a client um how how do you get to their values uh, and you know make sure that those are front and center because it does seem uh, that if you're going to do this well and sustainably 
um, then you can't shaft people. You, you know, you've got to be playing to your audience's uh, core values. Um, so talk to me about that. I mean, part of that is about getting into the weeds about process, but but it starts with picking the right clients. I mean, you have to understand, I got the reason I'm able to wake up every morning and look in the mirror and say, I'm a marketing professional as a guy who wanted to be a novelist and play in punk bands is because I'm very obsessed with ideas and I'm very obsessed with the best ideas, getting an audience. And I used to get very annoyed that I would get these clients as copy, as a copywriter who were doing amazing things. Like I had this one client who uh, had a consulting practice that was actually saving lives in hospitals. And the guy who ran the business, they did a respectable business, but they should have been 40 times bigger, you know? And um, he was just really reluctant to speak in a way that was compelling, that normal people understood. And he was really reluctant to um, promote himself because he felt that his stuff should speak for itself. And then I would have see people whose stuff was very, it, it could have disappeared tomorrow and no one's lives would have been any worse for it. And they were just so good at driving attention. And I just came to the conclusion that if I can write that balance a little bit, if I can choose to work with companies who are doing great stuff, and and I think that's why I wrote the book, because I needed to make a case that hype can be a, a force for good, right? So um, so if I if I could spend most of my days working with companies and people who had really good, you know, material, uh that we're making people's lives at least a little bit better, hopefully a lot better, and then help them build that audience that would help write the balance. So, you know, for example, I just signed an agreement with a company called Juice Guru Institute. Um, and, you know, when you, they're doing really quite well, but when you look at them, you're like juicing, you know, is this just like a Jamba Juice? Not at all. Basically, they've done all of this scientific research. They have doctors on staff. And their idea is that a certain kind of cold pressed juice basically distills um, all of the nutrition that it, it, societies that live for a very long time get in the normal course of their day. But in our industrial society, we can't, they have a process. We call it the one glass solution. And that's something we came up with. And so my goal, because I think this is really valuable work and it's actually extending people's lives is to take them out of the realm of, Hey, we're a really great juicing company to it's the one glass solution. It's something that, you know, as popular as Atkins, which probably is harmful to people or paleo, which is based on a lot of discredited studies, you know, but everyone in the world is convinced that they should eat bacon all the time. And that's going to make them healthy, which is frankly ridiculous. So um, it, make, it makes me happy to do that kind of work. Something I realized at a certain point is that even though um, I own a company, uh, Microfame Media, that is is uh what i do um i i noticed that when people buy the book um first of all i'm a writer first but when people buy the book if they're gonna buy from us in other ways if they're gonna engage us that's the absolute best way to get them to buy into those ideas so if you go onto amazon or wherever books are sold or order in your local bookstore and and um type in the hype handbook and check it out um that's the greatest plug you could do for me because um, I put my heart and soul into that book. And even if people just read it and learn everything and never call us outside of that, that makes me very happy. Michael, uh, it's kind of a musical theme show. And I kind of want to let, I want to show people who you are first, because you're a pretty cool dude. All oh, right? thank you. Yeah. Uh, the feeling is mutual for okay, both of you guys. <laughs> um, but we're talking about hype and music. We talked about the seventies. We talked about the nineties. And the last great hype master, a movie just came out, Elvis, which was mainly about the Colonel. Right? Oh yeah, I mean, so you had the fifties, the seventies, and the nineties. Uh, the Colonel had a uh, fascinating biography. He uh, background in the carnival. He was a carny, and he used all that stuff to uh, to hype up Elvis and all the things uh, that he did, um, and. I'm sure that at least a couple of the things that the Colonel did came out of your uh, hype handbook. Uh, he, 
he ran Elvis into the ground, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the guy got 50% as a manager. Even that is is unheard of. Uh so it's uh hype has been in music for forever. Uh we just picked on, you know, three three decades. Hype I mean, the 60s, Andrew Lou Goldham, the Rolling Stones manager, was was, you know, and Brian Epstein, you know. Epstein, I mean, both yeah. both of them were were tremendous. I mean, I think it's funny that, that brings me you, you talked about the carnival thing. This is something a lot of people don't know that I found in my research. The early copyright copywriters, the legends of copywriting, who basically invented modern advertising copywriting, which is now this multi-billion, if not trillion dollar industry. Almost all of them came from either like a carnival, like tent revival background, or te- you know, carnival background or yeah. a um, what they used to call advanced men or or political I mean, or um, religious tent revival leaders. It comes directly from that tradition of of sort of fringe showmanship. Our entire advertising industry. Well, Bar- Barnum was the first multimillionaire or the first millionaire in the entertainment space, um, and uh, you know, so much of sales comes from him. Yeah, yeah. negative reverse selling uh, is a, a P.T. Barnum uh, uh, construct. Well, something about Barnum that he he used to talk about a lot is that he knew that everyone knew he was full of it. Like humbug to him didn't mean lying. It meant creating a fantasy that people bought into. And I'm not I'm not defending a lot of what he did. Some of it was pretty nasty. But the one thing you can say about Barnum is people went in there and had a great time coming out. You know, I wouldn't say it was nasty. I think the colonel said it's like selling snow. It's an experience, right? Right. So you go to a fancy restaurant. I'm like, oh, it looks really nice, but give me something to eat, not a little. <laughs> so yeah, or pro- professional wrestling, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. E- even when people believed in it, they didn't really believe in no. it. Yeah. You know, they want to believe it. So that, yeah. that's, that's, that's part of hype. Michael Epstein, we got to bring you back, man. Now we know I'll, who I'll come are. anytime. <laughs> that's outstanding. Marcus Kalki, thank you for joining us once again from across the pond. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Oh, such pistols. That's <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. <laughs> from the pretty bacon, this side of the pond. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mike. Our show is supported by listeners and viewers just like you. DemandFarm.com. Unlock key account growth with Demand Farm's large deal, key account, and relationship intelligence products. Go to DemandFarm.com now to schedule a demo. Ask for Iron Man. Brent Keltner's Winalytics Revenue Acceleration Playbook Masterclass. In five hours over five weeks, help your sales and go-to-market team build the mindset and skills for a new buyer environment. Kick off in product-driven selling versus authentic conversations for all go-to-market teams. Team-level sessions for self-assessment and team dialogue. All go-to-market team wrap-up to identify top go-to-market strategy adjustments. Go to winalytics.com now.